Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles now to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we will also be reading from the book of Titus, the book of Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. We'll be reading both of those passages as we look once again at the qualifications for leaders within the church and uh, part two regarding uh, the qualifications of an elder. 1 Timothy chapter 3, we will be reading from verse 1 all the way through verse 7. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. The text reads, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Titus chapter 1. Two books over. Titus chapter 1. Verse 5. Paul writes to Titus, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine. Not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks once again for your precious word. We pray, Father, that you would open the eyes of our heart and fill us with your spirit. Illumine our minds that we might see and understand the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Spiritual leaders of the church are not to lord it over the flock, but to prove to be examples. 
They're to lead by example. Just as in the U.S. Army, the symbol for those who are in the infantry, who are the foot soldiers who do the frontline fighting, especially in the past days. It's a soldier. That's what their emblem is, the symbol of a soldier with a rifle in one hand, their helmet is cocked, their head looking back behind them, and their other arm waving others to come on ahead in a motion, and the leader is shouting back, follow me. And the symbol illustrates what leadership by example is to be. It illustrates what a leadership by example is to be as a soldier causes men to come and follow me into battle. And that's what it is. In the book entitled The Book on Leadership, The Power of Godly Influence, the author notes, quote, to put it simply, leadership is influence. The ideal leader is someone whose life and character motivate people to follow. The best kind of leadership derives its authority first from the force of a righteous example and not merely from the power of prestige, personality, or position. By contrast, much of the world's leadership is nothing but manipulation of people by threats or rewards. That is not true leadership. It is exploitation. Real leadership seeks to motivate people from the inside by an appeal to the heart, not to external pressure or coercion. For all those reasons, leadership is not about style or technique as much as it is about character, unquote. And that is the thrust of this passage that we have looked at last week as well as this week. That of the character of one who leads the church. Of that who is an elder, that who is a pastor, overseer. The words are used interchangeably. And we have been looking at many of those character qualities. And they are generalities that would characterize a person. They are not absolute perfection in that realm of Person, But when you look at them, do they characterize that individual? They are character qualities because it is by a person's character and who they are rather than threats or manipulation or whatever it may be. And so last week we ended at the character qualification of being able to teach in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The ability to teach, and we said that they, it meant that they were not only skilled in teaching, but primarily really the ability to communicate biblical truth. And we looked at 1 Timothy 5.17, which said that the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. In other words, there are some elders whose primary work or giftedness is in preaching and teaching, but that may not be characteristic of all the elders to be in a formal preaching and teaching sense. But all elders must have the ability to communicate biblical truth, to be able to discern what is right and what is wrong, what is biblical, what is not biblical, to be able to communicate that perhaps in a one-on-one setting or a small group or in their family or people who have questions, whatever it may be, they must be able to communicate biblical truth. Then we stop there and now we come 
to another character quality, and that is not addicted to wine. Not addicted to wine. And as we learned last week, the word temperate, the word temperate means without wine, and it communicates being a well, having a well-balanced life. And I've mentioned before that wine in the New Testament was very diluted, not addicted to wine. Dr. Norm Geisler in his book, To Drink or Not to Drink, researched that particular question regarding the comparable alcoholic content in New Testament times. And he states that one would have to consume about 22 glasses of wine in New Testament times to get the same amount of alcohol in two martinis today. It's not uncommon to have eight parts of water to one part of wine. But needless to say, you'd have to drink quite a bit of New Testament common everyday wine in order to get drunk. But here, the word for not addicted to wine not only means a person is not an alcoholic, but refers also to one's regular associations. That they're not a person who regularly drinks alcohol. They're not one who will frequent establishments that are like that. And their lifestyle is not associated with that of being a drinker. Now, we know it is not a sin to have a drink or consume wine as such. But the question is, is this person one who is addicted to wine or has a lifestyle that is associated as such? That is, are they characterized by that or not? They're not to be addicted to wine. It is wise to abstain for the sake of testimony. But there are times when it might be appropriate or inappropriate. But is there association such that they're related to that? The next qualification is not to be pugnacious. Literally, the word means a giver of blows. An elder is not to be one who is quick-tempered to respond, to pick a fight. They're never to utter threats or getting to pushing matches. And as odd as it may seem, this particular qualification back in New Testament times, in biblical times, people sometimes would settle their differences like some non-Christians might today. The old, uh, I'll meet you out back at the dumpster after church. In the sermon on families that succeed, Jay Kessler said, quote, I once questioned a state trooper presented with the Outstanding Trooper Award about what the governor said when presenting the award. He said, you haven't once roughed up a drunk or used excessive force on anyone. How can you be a state trooper for 15 years dealing with the kind of stuff you deal with and have that happen? Two things, the trooper said. First, if I'm called to break up a fight at a tavern, I never say to myself, there's a drunk. I always say to myself, there's a man, someone's husband, someone's son, someone's neighbor who got drunk. I try to think of him as a man. Think of this, not a crime. Secondly, the Bible says that a soft answer turns away wrath. So whenever I walk up to the window of an automobile, I always speak a little softer than the person I'm speaking to. Not pugnacious. John MacArthur writes, by extension, pugnacious can refer to verbal as well as physical fighting and quarreling. 
It's possible to hurt a person more deeply and permanently with cruel words than with a fist or a club. An elder should have no part in meanness, abusiveness, or retaliation, no matter how cruelly provoked. When conflicts arise, he must make sure that they are settled peacefully, reasonably, and without animosity. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, the apostle admonished Roman believers, be at peace with all men. All who serve God, then, are never to be retaliatory, never to be vengeful, never to be resentful, never to strike back. Instead, when struck, they're to turn the other cheek. For what? For the glory of God. To be patient when wronged with gentleness, instructing or correcting those who are in opposition, as Paul writes to Timothy. That is the next qualification. To be gentle or to be patient. A godly leader is to be known for their gentleness, known for their patience, meaning to be considerate, to be gracious, to be forbearing. It means that they're a person who is forgiving, a person who doesn't rehearse all of the bad things that someone else has done, a person who does not forgive, does not let go, who is bitter, who is resentful, hurts themselves as well as others when they let it loose. One of the most common problems, as I've shared many times out on the mission field among people in general, is that of having a forgiving spirit, of being patient with others, of being gentle with others and having that forgiveness of overlooking things that are of offense. Often people are not gentle or patient because of pride. They look at themselves and they say, I know better. I am better. They think of themselves as more high than the other. The person who is that way forgets that everything that they have, everything that they know, everything that they are, are by the grace of God. And if God were not so gracious to them, they too would be in the other person's shoes, struggling as they do, perhaps even worse off. But the person who is patient and gentle is often the one who is the more humble. Next qualification, the fourth one there is that of being uncontentious, uncontentious. And this word means not quarrelsome, not argumentative. They're not a contender who will be one who argues or enjoys arguing The word for pugnacious refers to one who is more characteristic of physical fights, could mean verbally fighting, but uncontentious is much more clear in having a verbal melee. And in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, Paul reminds Timothy of something very important, something that I remind myself often in 2 Timothy 2. It says that the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, and patient when wronged. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. He reminds Timothy, look, 
It's a foregone conclusion that you will be wrong. People will somehow offend. People will step on your toes. People will not meet whatever they think might be right. And you think whatever it may be. And you're going to have people who are opposed to you. False teachers or whatever. How will you respond? You must not ever be quarrelsome. But be kind. Be patient. Be gentle. Especially when you're wronged. They assume things about you that are not true. They'll accuse you. They'll complain. They'll say all sorts of things. But with what? How do you respond? He says, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. It doesn't mean that you never bring up an opposing viewpoint, but it's the attitude that comes with it. It's the attitude by which it's presented. And some people, for some of them, some people, their way of communicating is almost like it is a, a boxing match where it is regularly fighting or arguing or whatever it may be. An old friend of mine, I remember pastoring in Texas, shared that they never knew why there was a particular person on their board always fighting, always opposing everything until... They'd learn later on that that person had come out of a cult or a church in which he felt it was his responsibility to oppose the pastor. Always argumentative or arguing with others, contentious, quarrelsome, not being a team player. That's how some juveniles are. Some adults carry that into their adult life. I was visiting one board, I remember, many years ago on the East Coast. The chairman of the board, I sat down with him, and the, the chairman of the board was telling me how they had a, a dozen elders or so. And I thought to myself, well, that's great. They have, they've got a, a well-established elder board or leadership board or whatever it might be called. And I thought, oh, that's nice. And then I was sitting down with them, and there was a deaconess there. And I'd asked her a, a question and, you know... And she began to answer. And because she hadn't been answering quickly enough or something like that, the others started yelling at her. And I thought to myself, that's terrible how they talked with her. And later on, I talked with her about that. And she told me when she got on, because they would bicker and things like that. And she used to go home and cry after every meeting because of how she was treated. No one enjoys contention among leaders or strife. It hinders the work of the church and you never want one who is contentious, who isn't a team player in harmony and unity to be a part of the leadership of the church. Fifthly, they are to be free from the love of money or not fond of sordid gain, as it says in the book of Titus. Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, godliness is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And he reminds us, for we have brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these which we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money... Is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Some long for it, long for it, 
They have a love for it. The word literally for lover of money means not love silver. It doesn't really refer to one who has money, but one who has a love for it. And one can tell. One can tell for themselves what dominates one's mind. Is it always the bottom line of what money is? Is it always the bottom line of how much things cost or whatever it may be? Because if one is an elder, they are not to be a lover of money. When they do that and they're in the leadership, what happens is they see everything or see most things as an opportunity for what? Gain. Financial gain. Rather than seeing things as an opportunity for true spiritual fruit, for the glory of God. They want to see what? What concerns them is the bottom line of the financial papers rather than is God honored? Is God glorified? Is this the will of God? Godly people don't want financial gain at the cost of integrity. Everything needs to be focused on the glory of God rather than on finances. Sixthly, another character qualification of an elder or pastor or leader of the church in that particular office is one who manages home and his family well. He must be one, verse 4 of 1 Timothy 3, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And in Titus 1, verse 5, it says, children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. You know, the Puritans... They used to refer to a person's family as the little church, as a little church. You know, qualification explains itself. If a person can't manage his own household well, how can he take care of God's church? You know, in the New Testament times, the most trusted servant, the most trusted servant was chosen to be the household steward when the master was not home. And in the same way, the church belongs to God. The church belongs to God. And those who are to be entrusted with oversight in the church are to be those who manage the spiritual welfare of the church well. Who care about the spiritual welfare of the church. So one might manage their home well, and their persons and their finances, but if they have children who are rebellious, who are disobedient, that person is not qualified. Or if that person has, conversely, children who are well and obedient and well-behaved, and yet their own personal life is in disarray, their own home is not taken care of, then they're not qualified either in both cases. They may be excellent and very gifted people, but they're not qualified. The text reads, If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? One pastor I remember I had heard of wanting to honor the word of God in his own life. I was at a pastor's conference and stood up. He stood up at the shepherd's conference And he said that he had a child. 
who was rebellious, wasn't walking with the Lord. So he asked the leaders of his church if he could step down from ministry. That's what he did. He knew that he wasn't qualified. And his motive was to spend time with his son who had walked away from God and to win his child's heart back to the Lord Jesus. And that's a very tough thing to do. You have a child who's not walking with God. Step down. God was gracious. God was very gracious. Because he came back the next year. And he had won his son back to walking with Christ. He came back to that conference, a conference of 3,000 pastors, and he stood up and shared how God was gracious to his son and to him. How the church invited him back to be their pastor. What a challenging example that was. What a challenging example. And just as the husband of one wife, that qualification doesn't mean that one must have a wife. The qualification here doesn't mean that one must have a child as well. And then Titus 1, 5 and 6 says, Children who believe, children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. In the text, the word children is the word technon. And technon refers to an offspring of any age. Of any age. When Paul writes about Timothy, he writes that Timothy is his true child, true technon in the faith. And Timothy was a pastor of a church. It is a child of any age. He immediately follows that. Children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Now, we might be able to say, well, any child who is seven years old is rebellious. Sure, one can understand that. But one accused of dissipation, living a lifestyle of debauchery, living a lifestyle of decadence, living a lifestyle of self-indulgence, strongly suggests that in the mind of the Apostle Paul, a child is one who is of any age, even very young children, who believe in Christ, they can certainly be rebellious, but they can't be accused of dissipation in any common, everyday sense of the word. So I believe that this refers to that of an elder having children who believe. Understanding that at a certain age, their children come to an understanding, of course, that Jesus is their Lord and Savior and receiving, accepting that in repentance and placing their faith and trust in Him. But the qualification of an elder is that they have a, a child who believes, who is a Christian. Significant. It is significant to understand that in the New Testament, this particular word believe, the word pistos, is used passively of God's faithfulness of Christ's faithfulness, of the faithfulness or trustworthy of God's Word, is also used passively many times of people in general. But it's significant that except for this and sometimes disputed text, it is always used of people whom the context clearly identifies as believers. As believers. Unbelievers are never referred to as faithful or as those who believe. Believe. 
Because some might say, well, you know what? It, it, it simply means faithful, as the New King James would have translated it. Children who believe, who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe, is the referent here. May have many men who are good men in terms of faithful to the Lord, in terms of being good parents, in terms of being faithful and gifted in many ways. But if they don't have children who believe, I don't believe that they would be qualified. You can imagine the, the testimony that a pastor might have if he were to come and teach or preach or an elder might teach and one of his children has grown and one is an atheist and another one is a Mormon and another one is a Buddhist. What kind of testimony or witness would that be? Be a liability. So an elder must manage his own household well, manage his family well, manage his children well, and must have believing children who are not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Seventhly, not a new convert. Not a new convert. And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. The word new convert is found only here in the Bible. And even extra biblical references speak of the one who is planting a tree in the ground, sort of like new shoots. An elder is not to be that of a, just a baby Christian, but one who is more mature relative to others. And it's noted here that in 1 Timothy, Paul includes this qualification, whereas in the book of Titus, he leaves it out. Why? Because the church at Ephesus, by which Timothy was the pastor of, was a much more mature church, an older church. Titus ministered in a church that was newer, that was younger. And yet, he was to pick up the best of those whom God had placed within the church to establish leadership there in the church. For they were all new Christians, but he had to pick those who were the most mature. This qualification doesn't warn against appointing young Christians because they make mistakes, not because they don't have much experience, not because they might fail or have discouragement. It warns against it because of pride, because of pride. Maybe prideful for some to have a position and a role of authority. To have that responsibility. They might not fall into the same condemnation incurred by the devil. Isaiah 14, verse 12 and following, tells us about the attitude of Satan. For it says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, in reference to Satan, I will ascend to heaven. I will may raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend to the heights of the cloud. And I will make myself like the most high, unquote. I will do all of these things. So the self-styled. Self-willed pride of Satan came and God brought him down. Because of his pride, God demoted him. He fell into condemnation. And that is God's warning that we not have leaders who are new converts. 
When pride comes, Proverbs 11:2 says, then come dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. Eighthly, they must have a good reputation outside of the church. Must have a good reputation outside of the church. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. The word reputation comes from the same word by which we get the word martyr. That which is that of a witness or a a testimony. It is imperative that an elder have a good testimony among those who don't know the Lord outside of the church. Doesn't mean that everyone will agree with him. Or not be in concurrence with them does mean, though, that they will know him as a person of integrity, of good character. It means that he doesn't carry some bad blight against his life. God works in the character of a man to have that kind of reputation. One of my close friends, probably about He's about 15 or 20 years older than I am. I used to drive to church. But he, when he came to seminary, we were in a number of classes together. When we came to seminary, he was a, a new and used car salesman. Now, the fact he, he owned a dealership and he was seeking to be a pastor. And so you have a used car salesman who's going to be a pastor. And sometimes you think of used car salesmen and not in the most positive way. So I asked him about that. I asked him, what what, what, what would people think of his dealership and all of that? He was from California, except, and all. But the wonderful thing about his particular dealership is he ran it with integrity. And he ran it with such fairness that his dealership was one of the best, the most profitable, and had the most positive reputation in that area that he was in. And that's the type of reputation that he was to have. Philippians 2.15 tells us, Prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. When people think of you, what type of reputation do they perceive? What would they say about you behind your back? What would they perceive you as? Would they perceive you as a person who is a person of integrity, a person who has a good reputation among your neighbors, a person who, when they think of you, think positively of you as a person? Even though they may disagree with you, what do they think? A good reputation outside of the church. They may, again... Not agree with everything that you promote. Not agree and see things from your point of view. But would they have an accusation against your character? One's testimony affects how people will view Christ and His church. And in the book of Romans 2.24, Paul describes the effect of Israel's testimony because of their sin. For it says, For the name of God is blasphemed. Among the Gentiles because of you. Do people say things about God in a negative way because of how you behave, how you act? How do people respond? Ninthly, 
They're not to be self-willed. Titus 1.7 Self-willed. It's a very strong adjective describing someone who is arrogant in their self-interest, asserts their own will in the disregard of others. It's not characteristic of someone who seeks the will of God. It's, I'll do it my way, or I want this way, approach to life. And they're proud of their self-interest. They're proud of their own little self-glory or self-fulfillment. Or they have a soapbox that they continually ride, a drum that they beat all of the time. Doing what is best for the interest of God and for the church might mean that, you know what, it might not benefit me. might not benefit my own particular needs or my own particular interests or my own ambitions because, you know what, that is secondary to the glory of God and the desire to build the church up. When we ask, for example, what would meet the needs of a church in terms of a, a speaker, whether it be for our conference or a Bible conference or whatever it may be, I always ask the leaders the question. I always ask the question, what would be a blessing and the needs that would be met in the congregation as a whole? Not what would you personally be interested in. What is a pulse that's such that it would meet the needs of the church? Not always pushing for some program or some personal agenda by which they feel strongly. I know the president of a seminary who was encouraged to step down because they were so wrapped up in this personal soapbox that they had, they were not temperate at all about it. And it consumed them. They were self-willed about it such that they took that on. Tenthly, person who is to be a elder is not to be quick-tempered. Not to be quick-tempered. means that the person is not to have a short fuse. They're not to be easily provoked. They're not easily offended at all. They're not to be person, people who will snap back. The person does not become angry if things aren't done exactly how they would or if decisions don't go their way and elders not to be angry because of the failure of others or the shortcomings of others but a wise leader shares in both the failures as well as the successes you ever notice when things go wrong in any group whether your work group or the church or whatever it is often people will what they'll change their language depending upon what it is if something goes wrong they separate themselves and they'll find who it is to blame But if things go well, they change their line. We did this. We did that. We made this choice, including themselves as part of the credit. Not quick-tempered means that a person doesn't look to blame, but to share. Not quick-tempered means that a person chooses to be a part of both successes and failures and given a set of circumstances. People will respond differently. How do they respond How does a person respond to a set of circumstances? You find that a person has a personal offense or a car accident or some other situation. A group of people, everybody in that group will respond differently, don't you? Realize? Quick-tempered people will often blame others, blame something else. I'm mad because so-and-so did this. They said this. They did that. And like the fall in the Garden of Eden, they find Another cause to blame. But in reality, we choose our reactions, don't we? 
We choose how we will respond to a circumstance. We choose how are we going to conduct our own attitude. We often can't change something that's happened, but we can choose to respond in a godly way. We can choose to have the right attitude. And good attitudes as well as bad attitudes spread. And you want to have a leader who will spread good and godly attitudes. Positive attitudes that look at a situation and say, you know what, despite the negativity of a particular circumstance, we can respond in a joyful and godly manner. Because one who is quick-tempered often is tied to, tied to some problem. Perhaps tied to pride. Perhaps tied to insecurity. Perhaps tied to some past hurtful experience. I've seen it tied to people who have hidden secret immoral sins. When what other category of those who are quick-tempered or of outbursts of anger in Galatians 5, 19 through 21? Galatians 5, 19 to 21. It says that the deeds of the flesh are evident. Immorality, impurity, sensuality. Then it says anger, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. And he goes on, envy and drunkenness and all such things, just as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They won't inherit the kingdom of God. These are all things that are divisive. For hot-tempered man, Proverbs say, stirs up strife. Dr. David Seaman says, quote, Anger is a divinely implanted emotion, closely allied to our instinct for right. It is designed to be used for constructive spiritual purposes. The person who cannot feel anger at evil is a person who lacks enthusiasm for good. If you can't hate wrong, it is very questionable whether or not you really love righteousness. In other words, there are some people who never get angry at anything. Yet God has granted to us a heart that if it loves what is good, it will hate what is sinful. For there is an unrighteous anger, but there is also a righteous anger to hate what is sinful. When someone accuses or offends God, when God is defamed, then we have a righteous anger that is proper. But not quick-tempered over unrighteous things. That is the next qualification. A lover of what is good. Titus 1.8. A lover of what is good. One who has a strong affection for what is good. Romans 12.9 says, Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. And Amos 5.15 says, Hate evil. Love good. Some people think those things that are good when they watch media, when they have entertainment. Oh, good things. They're boring. They're dull. They're not exciting. Opposite end of the spectrum. Those things that are just evil and wicked and whatever is more thrilling. That is wrong. A godly spiritual leader is one who has a true appreciation and desire for what is good. Many of you are parents. You want what is good, right? For your kids. You want... What is good? Most parents do. If they truly love their children, they'll want what is good for them. They'll feed them good food. They'll clothe them with good clothes. They'll provide a shelter for them because they love their children. 
They want above all else for their children to have a saving relationship with Christ. But if a parent doesn't want that for their own child, if they neglect their children, if they fail to live for their responsibility to take care of their children, what love is that? So too, a spiritual leader. A spiritual leader needs to love what is good because it is out of that love for what is good that they want those whom they care for to grow in Christ, to give to them what is good, to bless and encourage them. A leader must love what is good. Just like a good diet, a leader must know what is good in order to feed the people what is good. They must be a lover of what is good. Twelfthly, they need to be sensible. Sensible. Another compound word meaning to save and of the mind, to be sensible, to be wise or prudent. In 1 Timothy 3.2, and we looked at a form of this in last week, to be prudent, to be wise. In other words, they're to be wise in having spiritual priorities. Not wise in the worldly sense, but to be wise in knowing how to take knowledge and apply it to life. In a practical way. It is one thing to know a lot about what the Bible says, but some people who are very smart may not have wisdom, may not be prudent, may not know how to bridge the gap. How does this apply to life? That is what wisdom is. Skillful living by truthful things that are found in the Word of God. And so it's important that leaders ask at any level, and for you to ask as well, what does the Word of God say about this particular issue? What does the Word of God say how we should respond to people who do not treat us rightly? How does the Word of God tell us, instruct us, and guide us how we ought to address this particular thing, no matter what it is, or to be sensible? That is the idea behind the word sensible, having spiritual priorities. Nextly, they are to be just. Titus 1.8, just. Micah 6.8 reminds us, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God. A person who is just is a principled person. They do things, not simply because uh, they are beneficial or beneficial to the church, not because they are easier, not because they're more expedient or not because they're pragmatic, but because they are the right things to do. No matter what the cost is, they are a principled person. They don't say to themselves, well, everybody else is doing it, so it's okay. Or it's okay unless we get caught. Or it's okay because the other way is just too much trouble and takes too much time. People who are just live by principle of what is right and what is wrong. And they are to look at things in that light. And so too, when they lead the church, they're not to say, well, you know what, let's do it this way. It's okay because it'll save us some money. Or as long as nobody sees, we don't have to get whatever this may be right. No, because that is not just. That is not right. Lastly, they are to hold fast to the faithful word. Titus 1.9 Hold fast to the faithful word which is in accordance to the teaching that he may both be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. 
And it's important to hold fast because they are the ones who are to guide the church in what is true according to the Word of God. They're not to mediate all of these things, to find the consensus. You know, I remember going to a, a, a church once and asking about how they have come to their convictions and what they believe about this or that. And, and, and the leader of that, that congregation, they were without a pastor, this was many years ago, said, well, we just, we just believe whatever the congregation as a whole believes. In other words, you take a kind of a poll and whatever everyone believes, that's what we will believe. It's not by majority opinion that truth is established. It's not by majority opinion that people decide right and wrong. It's the Word of God that decides what is right and wrong. When Jesus began to preach, or when Paul began to preach, and when others began to preach, you know what? The majority of people certainly didn't agree with what they had to say. Even though it was from the truth of the Word of God, the majority would have been wrong. What is true is the Word of God. What is true is the Word of God. And we are to be people who love the Word of God and be able to teach and exhort and refute those who contradict to be people who hide the Word of God in our heart. In the biography of Walter Jesperson, who went home to be with the Lord a couple of months ago, recently at a hundred years old and have a lifetime of service in the mission field, his wife said to him in his biography, you know so much scripture. Does memorizing come easily to you? Walter, he laughed, not particularly, but my parents encouraged us to memorize Bible verses the exercise didn't mean much to me then, but the scriptures worked their way into my brain. When I was alone in the mountains for a year, I learned a lot more. The Lord used his word to bless me and to help other people, unquote. He loved the word of God and we are to hold fast to that faithful word because everything else, all other philosophies will blow against that. And if you do not know what you believe, then you'll sway with every wind of doctrine. But instead, as the scriptures are to say, like psalmist in Psalm 119, 97, oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. And an elder is to be like that. Why? So they can exhort in what is good to refute those who contradict. Paul, in his last letter to Timothy in the last chapter, just before he died, wrote to Timothy and he said to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the word, not that of pop psychology, not of self-help, not of social justice. Be good and preach the word of God and be ready in season and out of season to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort with great patience and instruction. Timothy wasn't to be a storyteller. He wasn't to be a stand-up comedian. He wasn't to be some anecdotal preacher, but he was to preach the word of God. Not the latest fads, not the emails or the skyscraper sermonettes. He was to preach the Word of God. And they are to hold fast to the Word of God, which gives life. 
These are the non-negotiables. These are the non-negotiables. And as we come to a time when our church nominates those who are leaders, we look and say, are these characteristics of a person who is a leader? General characteristics, they may not be that all of the time. There aren't going to be anyone. There won't be anyone who is perfect. But we ask, are they above reproach? As a generality, something characterize them other than that of a godly heart? Are they morally pure? Are they balanced and temperate? Are they wise? Do people respect them? Are they hospitable? Do they love strangers? That's what it means. Are they able to communicate biblical truth, maybe even in an informal sense? Are they addicted to alcohol? Are they people who are fighters? Are they gentle? Are they argumentative? Do they love money? Are they a good steward of their home? Do they have children who believe? Are they people who are mature believers, not just new converts? Are they people who have a good reputation with those outside of the church? Are they self-willed? Do they have a soapbox? Are they quick-tempered? Do they love what is good? And do they hold fast to the Word of God? These are character qualities with the exception of the ability to teach. Because when a person stands before God, they're going to stand before God not by all of the things that they have done, not by all of the Sunday school classes they've taught, or all the small groups that they've led, not by all the hospitals they have built, not by all of the people that they've even preached to in the, in the world. They will be judged by their character. Samuel Brengel, commissioner of the Salvation Army in the late 1800s, said, The final estimate of men shows that history cares not for the rank or title a man was born with or the office he has held, but only by the quality of his deeds and the character of his mind and heart. We desperately need people of godly character who will be faithful to serve in the king's court. Touch the world by their character and by their life. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. God in heaven, you are the one, O Father, that we have come to love and know and serve. And what a privilege it is, O God, to serve you in whatever capacity. And we know, O Father, that these are qualities that are to be characteristic of us all. Not just those who are leaders, but these are the qualities that we are to strive after. We pray, O oh Father, that we might be like that of an infantryman. One who holds the sword of the Word of God. One who is looking forward and with the other arm waves to others and says, follow me. Follow me as I follow you, O Jesus. Lord, may you continue, Lord, to conform our heart that we might rise to the challenge of leadership within your church. In Jesus' name, amen.